This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to the Triple Vision podcast, your window into the past, present, and future of blindness in Canada. This podcast has been made possible by a generous contribution from T-Base Communications and the support of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. The mission of Triple Vision is to gather and document previously untold Canadian blindness narratives, one lived experience at a time, and to make our history accessible and universally known. Welcome to Triple Vision. I'm David Best, your host, and with me as my co-host is Hannah Levitt. Good day, Hannah. Hi, David. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. So who's our guest and what is our topic for today? Our topic today is the history of the CNIB in Canada, its early formations, the reasons it formed. So that's what we're going to explore. And today we're going to meet Jim Sanders. I'll let you introduce him more. Yeah, today we're talking to Jim Sanders, who lost his vision in the early part of his life and pursued a career through CNIB and recently retired from the top position of CEO. Uh, hi, Jim, and welcome to our podcast. Thank you, and a uh, pleasure to be here, David. Pleasure to be here, Hannah. That must have been quite some climb. You you spent many, many years with the CNIB. <laughs> well, in fact, a total of 42 years, because I actually started when I was younger, growing up in the Lakehead, Port Arthur, Fort William. They now call it Thunder Bay, but they changed the name after I left. I, I was so egotistical back then, I thought they changed the name so I wouldn't find my way back. But um, throughout my high school and university, uh, CNIB was very close, and I lost a good portion of my sight. I just didn't have it when I was born. So the CNIB and Mr. Gilby visited my parents right almost from my birth, about 10 days after. But I grew up, and I worked every weekend uh, as a teenager through yeah. university at the Port Arthur General on the weekends and the CNIB smoke shop. And that actually is part of CNIB's history in itself. And uh, I was offered a summer job at the CNIB Lake Joseph Center in Ontario in the Muskokas. And actually, my first job was teaching water skiing. So when you accumulate everything, uh, it was 42 years. But I really didn't start my career until April of 1969, retired in 2010. Well, that, that's great. So we know we have the expert of experts on CNIB with us. Jim, in an earlier podcast, we met Serge Durflinger, who wrote the book Veterans with Vision, which outlined the history of the early war blinded in Canada and how they develop rehabilitation services and everything. And, and can you tell us a little bit about how that led to CNIB's let, let me have a go at that, Hannah. Actually, when I retired, I continued to be the executive director, but in an honorary position of the Sir Arthur Pearson Association of War Blinded. I've been connected with them since about 1972, but they're executive director since 1989. And so I did get to know a lot of the war blinded, but I learned a number of things. First of all, there was an accepted understanding that it was the war blinded First World War blinded Canadians who actually founded the CNIB, and that's actually not accurate. But let me take a, a step back. 
the two English-speaking schools for blind students in Brantford, Ontario, Halifax, Nova Scotia, established in 1871, 1870 and 71, respectively, a very good school from all accounts, and many of the students went on to postgraduate work. It was through those networks, if you will, in Brantford and in Halifax, and they got to know that there were a number of well-educated blind people who began to advocate for a national organization that would serve blind adults. Today, you would have called them advocates, radicals of their day, I suppose. And so the actual notion of a national organization started pretty well toward the end of um, the 19th, early 20th century. And, And it was fairly strong but it really didn't go very far in terms of, of, of in terms of um, occupying or getting the attention of the federal government because under the constitution services whether they're health medical library education social services are all the responsibility under the constitution of the provinces so a national organization would have, it would have been, well, I don't think the federal government would know how to handle it. And that, and the archives are pretty clear on that. But it's fair to say that if it weren't for the First World War blinded veterans, we probably would not have had a national organization serving blind people. We'll never know. But it just, there would be no way for that to occur because of the Constitution. Another historical event happened around that same time that a lot of people don't understand the implications for blindness was the Halifax explosion in uh, 1917. Could you tell us a little bit about how blindness fits into that? Let me lead up to that, Hannah, because that is a a critical dividing point. First World War blinded veterans were returning to Canada. And up until that time, Society in general were very empathetic to blind people. They felt that the government should take care of blind people. Blind people should not be on the street starving to death. As First World War blinded veterans returned, however, there was a change in societal attitudes. And it's very clear from newspaper articles. They said these men served Canada, lost their sight. They deserve support for training and employment. And that is a total change. There was one other factor that that led to this. And Arthur Pearson, who is a newspaper magnate out of England, foresaw that there would be a, a war. And he said that there will be war blinded and there is no training facility here in the United Kingdom. And he got together with some of his wealthy friends. He was a wealthy newspaper magnate. He got together with some of his friends and created an organization that they called St. Dunstan's. And it was a place for blind people, for allies and United Kingdom to learn how to be blind, to learn skills. And the soldiers who were blinded off the battlefield, were taken to a specialty hospital in London, an eye specialty hospital, and and Pearson would visit every one of them. Edwin Baker, 
who graduated from the Queen's School of Engineering at age 22, immediately joined the Canadian Army. And he was stationed and was working one day in a trench in Belgium, doing the wiring, poked his hoed above the trench, and a sniper bullet removed both of his eyes. John Baker, his son, told me of his dad's recollection of Pearson visiting him. So there's a 22-year-old, bandaged, never to have his sight back, and Pearson visited him, talked about St. Dunstan's, and he presented every blinded soldier with a Braille watch. And John told me that his dad was very typical in his response. Well, what in the world do I need a Braille watch for? I'm blind. Pearson said, every blind man should be able to tell the time on their own to get an education, training, become employed, raise a family, contribute to the community. And Baker's response was pretty typical, according to John. Well, what the hell do you know about being blind? So Pearson very quietly said, I've been blind all my life. And that's a pretty powerful role model. So here's what happened. Baker and and many of the Canadian soldiers were encouraged because of Baker to stay When they returned to Canada, they had an attitude that you don't sit back as a blind person. So, Baker and First World War blinded veterans were coming in, many of whom went to St. Dunstan's, not all. The government had a problem. They were first sent to the Halifax School for the Blind to get some training, and there's some letters on on the archives that clearly indicate it wasn't working. One of the blinded veterans said, I'm just sitting here smoking a cigarette. I expected some training. I expected to work toward finding a job. So the government knew they had a problem. The charter was already of this national organization. The Canadian National Institute for the Blind was already languishing in Ottawa. But as you point out, Hannah, something changed on December the 6th, 1917. The Halifax explosion, destroying a good portion of the city, killing thousands, and the government was told almost immediately that there probably would be thousands of blind people. When the boom hit and they could hear it, they rushed to the window, and by the time the the uh, the explosion that just pushed the wind and uh, it just shattered glass, now there were less than a hundred totally blind who lost both eyes. And a, and, a, and a few hundred that lost one eye, but not the thousands, thank goodness, that happened. However, by that time, the government obviously took note of all these factors, war blinded coming in and then this explosion. So it's not a coincidence that on March 30th, 1918, that the government issued the charter of the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. Of the seven signatories to that charter, five were blind, three were blinded. And the first chief executive hired by CNIB, an educated blind person from the United States, joined the staff, and he lasted less than, oh, about nine or ten months. And his letter of resignation on the archives is quite telling, because he said, you 
He said, I cannot work for this organization. You expect too much from the blind, meaning the board. See, that's the influence that the war blind had brought back from St. Dunstan's. And of course, there are many of the war blind who were themselves educated before they went over. The CNIB basically was founded by blind veterans. What was what was the relationship with CNIB and the Sir Arthur Pearson Foundation then? Well, uh, I can tell you exactly that because when the chief executive quit, the board asked Edwin Baker if he would resign from the board and take over the chief executive position, which he did in 1919 and retired in 1964. And just to show you the, the the way in which they were thinking, the the very first employee was a job placement officer, a blind person from the U.S. who worked in Canada for over 30 years getting jobs. So the policy of the CNIB said that the chief executive must be blind and that if there are two applicants for a job, one is blind, the blind person would receive preferential treatment. In other words, we employ blind people. So Baker and the board, all of the administrators from the very front line in every community through to the very top position, all blind, all the specialized teachers of blind people were blind. And in 1925, Baker and War Blinded established the Sir Arthur Pearson Association of War Blinded, as it became known. And its its objective was to advocate on behalf of War Blinded with the federal government for a disability pension recognizing their loss of sight. It was also intended to bring War Blinded people together as in a social atmosphere. But Baker wore two hats. He was the chief executive of CNIB for all blind people. And we were called civilian blind in that terminology. And so when he and war blinded veterans went to advocate for their, um, their, their needs, they also advocated on behalf of all blind people. So here's some examples. Blind people were the first Blind Canadians, I should say, were the first Canadians to receive old age pension prior to age 70. Blind people were the first and only to receive a tax credit or a tax disability tax credit in recognition of the cost of blindness. So on the income tax form, right up until the early 1990s, it said blind persons tax deduction. The equipment that was designed specially for the use of blind people were brought in duty and tax-free, no other disability. And when I reached age 18, I got a check in the mail for $75 from the federal government. That's the federal government called the Blind Persons Allowance, BPA. No other disability. So that's the influence of war-blinded because they could get directly into see the minister's they could get directly into the prime minister. And so all blind people uh, benefited from war blinded. And the CNIB grew from there. Yes. So Jim, can you talk a little bit about, those are some of the benefits gleaned through the federal government. Can you talk a little bit about how CNIB's direct services evolved from those early days of war blinded to civilian blind? 
Well, uh, actually, it was always both because two of the signatories to the charter were not war-blinded. And so the board was made up of both blind and sighted people, war-blinded, civilian-blind, and there was never, except for the advocacy for the pension, disability pension, because of blindness, there was no other differentiation. The concentration was on employment. Uh, For example, when the federal government, during the early part of the Depression, approached CNIB to take over these newsstands, operated by blind veterans, in return, the federal government would provide first right of refusal for all food services in federal buildings in Canada. The provincial governments soon uh, offered the same, and CNIB became the 10th largest catering company, employing over 700 blind people, and industrial workshops with highly skilled blind people working with uh, a good wage and pensions. But it was this type of revenue plus federal government support that enabled CNIB to become the nationwide rehabilitation training. But the philosophy always was it starts with blind people, which is why the teachers were blind, why the administrators were blind, and why CNIB employed blind people from dictaphone typists through to just about every job except for the eye service nurses and and the drivers. So over time, that culture has changed. What has changed it? And well, what has changed that culture? And what drives the model in the early days? Well, a number of things changed even over my career. When I graduated from university in 1969, there were not a lot of jobs open for blind people. CNIB, yes. Computer programming was certainly an area in which blind people were employed in the community. But what has changed a number of things, first of all, attitude. Attitude that uh, blind people were skilled. Uh, Blindness did not necessarily interfere. In fact, in some cases, uh, it was indicated that blind people tended to stay working on a job much longer than sighted people. They didn't job hop and all of those things. And there were some practical aspects to it. But as attitudes changed in society, education increased among blind people, jobs opened up, and CNIB wasn't wasn't the only place, at least perceptually, that a blind person could obtain a job. And over time, and it wasn't until the 1990s where we started to see administrative staff who cited administrative staff that held positions that were held by blind people, and also technology changed. Computer technology really changed the lives of blind people because of access technology. My iPhone today, I can read print with it. I can correspond with it. I can do just about everything. I would say 30 years ago, I I could independently have access to about 5% of the information that came across my desk or in my mailbox. Today, I have 95%. So Mm. the number of professions opened up and the role of CNIB changed. The big, big multinational companies came in and bought up all of the catering. And uh, so CNIB, the last vestiges were probably in the 90s. 
Uh, we operated 21 residential homes because blind people, they were concerned that their liability, these blind people are going to hurt themselves. CNIB opened and, and operated 21 of those. So all of those are gone for the right reason, because there are more blind people working in regular industry, business, commerce than ever before. And it just wasn't needed anymore, David. So was it a challenge for an organization like CNIB to shift from the industrial age into the digital uh, knowledge age? In some cases, yes. Now, the CNIB Braille and, and Audio Library was the first library of its kind in the world to move to digital technology for both production and distribution. So that was embraced, certainly. But in terms of the training needed for blind people on technology or even making them aware of it, I'd say it took CNIB. And I was there at the time, so I'm looking at myself as well. It did take us longer to recognize the power of such technology. But as a, as a business, CNIB was one of the first to start producing Braille through automated means. It was a pilot project where it's called Duxbury. It was a software program that you would put on your computer and it converted your computer keys right. to the Braille keys. CNIB was the first to do that. So, as you say, the world is changing very rapidly. And it seems that as inclusion becomes more and more integrated into the mainstream world, what is the role of a service organization like CNIB? And how do you think it'll take on, what, what kind of role do you think it'll take on in the future? Well, this is my opinion because I have no, no first of all, the training of blind people, regardless of your age, will always be important. Keyboarding, touch typing, as they used to call it, all of those skills are still necessary. However, the role of an organization such as CNIB as an advocate, I believe, would be the most important. Uh, a consumer organization such as the Canadian Council of the Blind um, many people felt that CNIB should not be an advocate, but when you look back, if it wasn't for the advocacy of war-blinded people, frankly, we wouldn't be here today. So there's a role for a service provider to be an advocate, consumer groups to be an advocate, because there's one thing that will never change, and that is that if you do not know anything about blindness or blind people, you would automatically consider blindness as the most disabling of conditions. And as people said, I'd sooner be dead than blind. That attitude hasn't changed only because if you've never met a blind person, if you don't know the capabilities of blind people, you would come to that conclusion, not because you're mean, but because you just don't know. So advocacy to me will always be number one. And do you feel that w with the role of a, an organization like CNIB providing advocacy that it'll help individuals who are blind, civilian blinded, become stronger advocates for themselves, just like the old veterans did? Well, I guess depending on who you are, we've got some pretty strong advocates uh, here in Canada who are blind and 
if there aren't any role models and you don't know what you can do, you're not going to do it. So mm-hmm. many of the advocates and some of the strongest advocates have come out of concern over the dominance of the CNIB back in the 70s and 80s and 90s um, today that they considered that as paternalistic and patronizing and they became strong advocates and in fact had some very positive influences on CNIB opening up from what it was, including more blind people on boards. And that's the irony, you know, CNIB employed a lot of blind people and there were blind people on the boards, but there weren't all that many as the decades went by. So Jim, do you think the charity model is sustainable these days with um, inclusion the way it is and blind people actually out in the world so much more? Do you think services are still should be delivered through a charity model? Uh, I'm not sure, Hannah, if I could make that blanket statement. But what I do believe is that there is a much stronger role for government in providing services outside the charitable model. Quebec was among the first to fully fund rehabilitation services. And even though they contracted many uh, charities in Quebec to do this in some cases and set up others. But let me give you an example. The CNIB library was set up on the charitable model, not a dime from government. And in those early days, it, you know, Braille and audio books, they were produced, they were distributed, and it was, it was a very good service. But with technology and with international uh, opportunities, the charitable model could not sustain a, an equitable library, Braille and audio library to serve the needs of blind people, just couldn't. And Canada was the only industrialized country in the world where there is no funding for a mainstream public library in alternate format. And many of us start work very hard through the 90s and uh, right up to the time I retired, very, very close, resulting today in CNIB is no longer the, quote, library for the blind. It's called CELA or the Center for Equitable Library Access. It's an umbrella group primarily uh, and supported by public libraries across the country And for the first time, the federal government has funded the production of alternate format material. For the first time in history, that would not have happened had it remained a charitable model. The library today, as uh, compared to 10 years ago, there is absolutely no comparison. Although I started reading talking books in the 1950s on large play records, and and that came from the CNIB. So And it's the same with rehabilitation. You know, if you break your leg, as we used to say, you go to the hospital and the government would step in and pay for rehabilitation. If you lose your sight, you went to a charity. That model, as I understand it, but I don't know enough about it, but there would be from... that A lot of that has now changed. Apparently, government funding by a change of model of CNIB has increased, as I understand it, a significant amount covering rehabilitation services. So skill training will always be necessary. And if it can be delivered by a 
charitable model with significant government support, then that's, uh, well, that's the way it is today. And I have no idea because I don't need rehabilitation, but there's no doubt that CNIB hires and trains the best of the best, and they're out on they're out helping primarily older people now because that's the leading cause of blindness. Well, Jim, I want to thank you for joining us and giving us a history lesson on how the CNIB was founded and how the evolution of services took place over over time. I appreciate you taking the time. Well, let me thank you and AMI for bringing this to a broader audience outside the narrow audience of those of us who grew up with the CNIB. All the best. Thanks, Jim. And also thanks to our listeners for joining us this time. Next time on our next podcast, we'll be talking to Doreen Demas about colonialism. And Doreen is uniquely positioned because she's not only an Indigenous person, but she's also blind. So please join us next time and meet Doreen Demas. Triple Vision is made possible by the generous support of T-Based Communications and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Technical assistance has been provided by Accessible Media Inc., AMI-audio. Sam Robinson is the technical producer, and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. And finally, I thank you for joining us on this journey. If you would like to reach out to Triple Vision with questions or comments, you can email us at triplevision21 at gmail.com or at Twitter, triplevision21.